Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about environmental health risks with Dr. Nicole Diesel. Dr. Diesel is Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and Environmental Health at Yale School of Public Health. Here's Dr. Susan Higgins. I thought we'd just start with your telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the field of epidemiology. Sure. Well, I grew up uh, in Long Island, New York, just across the sound here. And uh, I grew up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And there was a lot of stories back then in the popular press about cancer clusters, particularly breast cancer. And many people wondered whether this was due to pesticides or the above ground power lines or some industrial pollution like polychlorinated biphenyls or PCBs. Um, but there really wasn't um, a lot of information and a lot of uns- there was a lot of uncertainty about these types of exposures and the role they may play in terms of cancer risk. And that was a really uh, an early motivator for me to get into this field of environmental health. Yes, and, and people uh, come to me all the time as a clinician. And, you know, this is a great source of angst and anxiety for them about, you know, well, you know, there's some things that I can't help. They're out there in the environment, and, and are they really causing my breast cancer, causing my uterine cancer? That We need people like you to sort these things out with the, the real science. Yeah, so some things really are a little bit beyond an individual-level control, but the science can help inform regulation and policies that can reduce people's exposures. I mean, you can't control the air that you breathe outside. Um, But uh, I also study a number of things that people do have within their control, uh, things that might be inside their homes. Now, you focus a lot on the environment. And by the environment, just to define that, it can be, you know, I think people think of environment as, you know, the air, air pollution, things like that. But when we think about environmental carcinogens or, or deleterious agents to our health, um, we don't think about food. Um, you know, pesticides are something people, uh, I think, are very aware of. But food is one of the things we never, we really never considered up until recently a carcinogen or a damaging agent, especially when we think about the things we eat every day, like red meat. This just came into the news. Yes, you're right. So in the field of environmental health, there's a movement to define the environment much more broadly. So really anything that's external to a human being. So it could include um, the air, the water, the dust in your home. Those are the traditional pollutants, but also um, things like what you eat. Now, not necessarily the nutrients, say, in the food, but there are a number of 
uh, other chemicals that are formed um, either by the way the food is processed, the way we cook it, the way it's packaged, all of those would certainly fall under environmental exposures. And so you're absolutely right. Just this week, uh, IARC, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, classified processed meats as a known human carcinogen. And that's the strongest category they have available. And then red meat was classified as a probable human carcinogen. And this is uh, in part based on epidemiologic studies looking at people who consume high, higher amounts of these types of foods and their risk of various cancers. Um, and so, for example, in some of my early work, I actually looked at what is it about the meat that might increase risk of cancer. And, um, you know, we like to think of epidemiology as being a detective work. And one of the most important and most challenging aspects of this detective work is trying to get high quality accurate measurements of what people are exposed to. So if you ask somebody, you know, how much meat do you eat in a year, you know, that's a very difficult question to answer. But if you can ask um, much more specific questions and perhaps give a picture and ask, you know, how many hamburgers do you have per week and how are they cooked and and, uh, really try to increase the specificity of your questions, you can improve um, the accuracy of your questions. And uh, the National Cancer Institute has done a tremendous amount of work in this area. And in some of my research, I compared what people said they ate to actual measurements of some of the metabolites of these meat carcinogens in their urine. So that's really an objective measure of what people were exposed to. Um, so we can compare that to people's self-reported information about their diet. And and that really um, highlights, or it's a nice example of the type of work I do, comparing different methods, different tools we have to uncover these clues about exposures and trying to figure out uh, what's the best measure that we can use in an epidemiologic study. So I like I like this concept of the detective, right? And I think people are not aware of all the tools that an epidemiologist has. You have questionnaires, but you know, maybe you can kind of round that out and tell us about all the different ways that you get, you know, you have to know the right question to ask, but then you have to be able to tease out these things that we call confounding variables. Um, and so I, I, maybe you could talk about the detective work part of it. Sure, I'd love to. So I, I really have um, more of an expertise in exposure science, and that's kind of this detective work where you're looking at um, exposure to, to different chemicals. So we have many tools in our toolbox to, to look for these types of clues. As you said, we can ask people um, about their habits, about where they spend their time, where they live. Um, however, some chemicals, uh, people's exposures are not knowable. So for example, Another pollutant that I study are, um, are the, a class of pollutants are these flame retardant chemicals that are added to our televisions and our couch cushions and upholstery. And if I asked you, you know, do you have flame retardants in your couch? You know, you, you wouldn't know. The average person doesn't know. It's not on the label. It's not knowable to a person. So in that case, um, the questionnaire is not going to work. So we have some other uh, tools we can use. We can measure chemicals in blood and urine, as um, the example I gave previously, looking at the meat mutagens. Um, So these flame retardants we can measure in people's blood and urine. Uh, We can also take samples in people's homes. So I've done some work where we collect people's vacuum cleaner bags uh, because the the dust in your carpet actually is... uh, 
it really reflects a longer-term exposure to a variety of chemicals that are in your home that you might track in, um, that drift in from the outside. So that's another um, objective measure of exposure. Um, and then the last tool that we can use as exposure scientists, environmental epidemiologists, is modeling. So if we know you live near um, a factory or hydraulic fracturing wells, we can map uh, how close you are to different pollutants. We can try to estimate or model uh, dispersion of different pollutants to, to your home. So um, I'm glad you brought up this uh, hydraulic fracturing. I hear this co topic bounced around in the media, and uh, it's uh, a little bit of a mystery to some people. So what's fracking and hydraulic fracturing, and why is it important to us as, as individuals? Yeah, hydraulic fracturing certainly has made the news uh, quite a lot lately. So this is a process um, and actually, let me back up a second. Um, so hydraulic fracturing is often used to describe a broader process of extracting oil and natural gas, fossil fuels, from resources that were previously unavailable to us. So, for example, uh, now um, oil and gas companies have this incredible technology where they can drill a mile or two below ground and then turn the drill so it's drilling horizontally into a into rock that's like concrete and um, drill for a mile or two into this rock then they pump water and chemicals under high pressure into the rock and it breaks open the rock and then that allows natural gas to flow up the well um, and it can be used for for fuel for for energy um, so the actual term fracking or hydraulic fracturing really refers to using water to break open the rock but we think of it now, um, many people understand it or use this term to not only capture that one step of breaking the rock, but uh, all the construction that's involved in drilling a well. And then you have diesel equipment running 24-7, and it's noisy, and you have all these people and workers moving into an area uh, doing this drilling work. The actual drilling, the fracking, the production of the gas, the distribution of the gas. So it's, it's a large... Um, process, and it's expanding very rapidly in this country, and we actually know very little about the potential health risks. What What do we think might be some of the most potent uh, and, and most harmful agents that come from that process? So from this process, there could be water contamination. I mentioned there's millions of gallons of water and chemicals involved in this process. There could be air pollutants from the construction and drilling of the well. Um, there could there's this influx of workers. There's noise. There's stress. So uh, there there are many many potential sources. In terms of cancer, um, there is a hypothesis that when you have an influx of workers into a community, they call it population mixing, and they're um, bringing their germs and their infections to a somewhat isolated rural population that may not have been exposed to these. And there's a hypothesis that this could uh, affect the immune system and lead to childhood leukemia or leukemia, for example. 
Um, also, in terms of cancer specifically, there's exposure to things like benzene, which is a known leukemogen, um, particulate matter, diesel exhaust, um, metals like lead and arsenic. Many known or suspected carcinogenic chemicals could be in the air or the water as well. So that, that one issue that you just mentioned is kind of fascinating is that you have a population of people, maybe indigenous to an area, living there a long time, and then you know, here comes the big, you know, fracking company into their backyard. It actually brings new, what we, I guess, is it sounds like what we as clinicians would call antigens and different diseases into the community that maybe they weren't exposed to before. And that's, that's kind of a topic that, that I think most people wouldn't be aware of. Yeah, it's a very interesting hypothesis that um, originated in um, England. There's a lot a lot of studies looking at uh, building a nuclear power plant, for example, and having all these workers come in. So I, I think there's a lot more to understand about that as one of the potential um, risk factors for cancer, but it is very intriguing. So in terms of, uh, you know, the big picture, you're like the detective. You're looking at our environment and all of, it's trying to sort out sort of all of these things that are, are you know, kind of true or false. It's a carcinogen or maybe it's not. Um, but uh, some of the things you're looking at are sort of economy-driven, right? Our world is constantly changing because of, it sounds like one of the things here is energy, right? So fracking is part of it. And it makes me think that maybe a lot of your findings and, and findings of other epidemiologists are really going to be able to drive the policymakers to to do things that protect us. I mean, heavy metals have been out there for a long time, um, and I think we know about those. Um, but radon's another thing that I think some of the epidemiologists figured out. Um, what do you think's on the horizon in terms of other um, sort of maybe public policy issues that are that are up and coming? That there are things that we may, may have never thought about, but they're carcinogens that people like you are looking into, or exposures, I guess, pesticides, et cetera. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, I really do strive to do policy-relevant work, so I hope um, that I'm achieving that. Uh, I think you're right that um, energy and burning of fossil fuels produces a lot of pollutants and has a lot of implications for climate change. I mean, with the changing climate, we may see um, changing exposures. Uh, Also, just the way our... um, economy works, you know, we identify certain pollutants to be toxic or carcinogenic. For example, uh, the flame retardants I mentioned, they're um, an example of a class that I've been studying are polybrominated diphenyl ether flame retardants. And uh, we know that those are um, carcinogenic or potentially carcinogenic or toxic, and so they're being replaced by alternatives. So we're constantly um, seeing substitute products for things we know are toxic. So it's a constant uh, revolving door of chemicals that we as scientists have to try to keep up with as we move ahead. Well, that's great. Thanks so much. Um, We're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about environmental health risks with our guest, Dr. Nicole Diesel. Smoking can be a very strong habit that involves the potent drug nicotine, and there are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking. But smoking cessation is a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments and to decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies. Smoking cessation programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. The smoking cessation service at Smilo operates on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service Clinical Practice Guidelines. 
All treatment components are evidence-based, and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications and smoking cessation counseling. This has been a Medical Minute, brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. For more information, go to YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Susan Higgins. I'm here with my guest tonight, uh, Dr. Nicole Diesel, and we're talking about environmental health risks and cancer. Um, in the last half, we discussed in briefly a few of your research interests, and one that I, I find really interesting is the flame retardants because um, it seems like uh, flame retardants are actually something that we're not even aware of. It, they're in our environment, but it sounds like they're in multiple multiple things in our environment. Could you tell us about the types of places we might find flame retardants when we don't even expect them? Yes, they are ubiquitous in our environment. So they these are chemicals that are added to consumer products to slow the spread of fire. So it does have a purported public health benefit, although uh, the actual... Um, beneficial effects on reducing fire injuries and fire deaths has certainly been debated. These chemicals are found in our carpets, in polyurethane foam, and cushions. So that includes couch cushions, uh, automobile furniture, baby seats, car seats, um, curtains, carpets, TVs, computers, a variety of different electronic devices. And these also may be not only in your home, but as I said, in the car, in the office. So they really are um, everywhere. So what's so what's sort of the biology of the exposure? Is it like asbestos where the little mini particles that we inhale? Is, is that how it may be harmful to us? So this was um, a really interesting question. Um, the reason why these chemicals even got on our radar was in Sweden, they had the uh, foresight to have a breast milk bank, and they stored breast milk samples for many years, and they measured these chemicals in breast milk and saw an exponential increase in these chemicals. And that was before we even understood what they did or where they were coming from. So this really shone a light on these uh, PBDE, polybrominated diphenyl ether flame retardants, and uh, spurred a, a real active area of research. So it's only um, in the last few years that we've been able to figure out that these chemicals are not bound in the televisions and the cushions. They migrate out um, after use of these uh, items, and they're in our dust. There, so we can um, be exposed to them via dermal contact from sitting on the couch, but also just hand-to-mouth activity, just in touching surfaces uh, and having some hand-to-mouth ac activity in the home, uh, resuspension of these the dust and particles and breathing them in inside the home. Um, and also, we do see these chemicals because they're very fat-soluble, which is why they were in high levels in breast milk. So they can also be in, in the food, in the food chain, they can accumulate, uh, particularly in animal products um, that are high in fat content. But it seems that the main route of exposure is through, through the dust inside the home. So something that, I mean, really, when you're home, you're not thinking about these things, but we're always being ex exposed to things in the environment that basically we have to now sort of sort out how this is going to be in, in the big scheme of things, how important this is. And it sounds like this is 
um, part of your new grant from the American Cancer Society. Maybe you could talk about the grant and, you know, where you're going to go with that and how you do that research specifically. Yeah, so I'm so happy that this research started first with a pilot grant from the Yale Cancer Center and the American Cancer Society. So I'm, I'm so appreciative to have had that start. And that led me to get a larger grant from the American Cancer Society, which uh, it's a mentored grant. So I'm working with other colleagues who have appeared on this show, like Yahweh Chang and Melinda Irwin and Ted Holford. So one of my goals in this grant is to to look at these polybrominated diphenyl ether flame retardants and risk of thyroid cancer. So one thing that's interesting about these chemicals is they actually look a lot like one of our thyroid hormones. So it confuses the body and the body sees these chemicals and may mistake it for our thyroid hormone. And that can can trigger a whole cascade of events that may potentially lead to thyroid cancer. And thyroid cancer is um, rapidly increasing. And the increased incidence in thyroid cancer also parallels increased use of these particular flame retardant chemicals. Um, So I'm I'm very eager to to pursue this to see if there's an association. Um, One issue that I'll be dealing with, with in this grant is trying to sort out um, which of the flame retardants and then uh, how these flame retardants fit into other exposures. So these flame retardants are part of a group of persistent organic pollutants. Um, They look a lot like DDT. Uh, There are other pesticides that are somewhat similar in structure. Um, The polychlorinated biphenyls, which is another pollutant I had mentioned earlier, um, also fit in this category. So in this analysis, we're actually going to be measuring uh, more than 50 of these persistent pollutants in blood samples of people who have thyroid cancer and people who are healthy. And we're going to try to see, um, we're going to compare the exposure levels of, uh, of these pollutants in the cases and the controls. And we're going to apply some really novel statistical techniques to try to sort out uh, which flame retardant, because there's actually many, many different formulations of these flame retardants, and um, how they fit in with also these other types of pollutants. So we really want to sort out kind of which one is the bad actor. Traditional epidemiology, environmental epidemiology has looked at, you know, one chemical at a time or maybe one small group of chemicals at a time. And we may be missing important combinations where two chemicals may act synergistically or antagonistically. So these types of statistical tools should really um, shed some light on this and hopefully allow us to kind of tease out which is the most important etiologic agent. Right, because it becomes really, as you said, the history has been, you know, asking simple questions. You know, is radon exposure in your home related to lung cancer? And they look at that one thing and one disease, but you're talking about a much more sophisticated process where there are multiple agents. And I imagine you also have to figure out the weight of each agent and use statistics to, to really kind of sort out how many of these things, how important they are. So uh, that's one of the big tools in your toolkit, right? The statistics. So you need a big, I would imagine, kind of robust software. You need a whole group of statisticians kind of together working on this, correct? 
Exactly, yes. Yeah. So I will definitely be collaborating with some really top-notch statisticians to help implement these really sophisticated approaches, yes. Which makes most mm-hmm. of us from medical school quake, thinking back <laughs> to the stats that we did, which were so simplistic, but still a little intimidating. So um, I really admire that you have this group of people who just put their energies into something that's actually really not very straightforward, the modeling, coming up with these you know, statistical tools um, is an innovative area I think that people in terms of health research um, don't appreciate, that there's a whole group of people that that's all they do, figuring out how to find the answer to the question and ask the right questions with, with math, basic, basically, right? Yes, I'm so grateful that we have them also because it is, uh, it is a little intimidating to look at some of these new techniques, uh, Bayesian models and uh, weighted quantile sum regressions, all, all of these things where I can understand you know, the purpose and um, work with them and they can really help me implement these um, really novel and complicated tools. Now, one of the things we discussed before, and this has been in the news in the past, but it's still a persistent problem. Again, some of this is economy-driven, growing food, uh, you know, and and exporting food um, and using pesticides is is a very big issue. And I know there's also, there are different international rules about pesticides, and we've certainly had some imports and export issues with pesticides. Um, Maybe you could talk about your work with with pesticides and and, uh, how that relates to sort of overall health for people in the U.S. Sure. So, getting back to the exposure, which is you know always where I start with a with an environmental problem. You know, we can be exposed to pesticides uh, from our use in and around our home if we're spraying for roaches or ants or termites. So that's one potential source or pathway. Uh, we can be exposed if we live in rural areas and we live near farmlands where pesticides are applied. And uh, you know, pesticides don't stay where they're applied. They drift either um, through winds or they're carried on particles um, in, into uh, into homes um, far from where, where they were applied. Uh, and then there's also uh, some people work with pesticides. So uh, there's been a lot of work done with the Agricultural Health Study, um, which is a joint effort by National Cancer Institute, Environmental Protection Agency, and National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences to look at farmers who you know, in general, um, tend to be quite healthy. They don't have high rates of smoking. They're doing a lot of physical labor, yet they do have higher rates of certain types of cancers. So maybe it's the pesticides. Um, Also, we have the exposure from the food supply, as you mentioned. And, uh, you know, we've been talking about things in the news. And uh, just a few weeks ago, um, International Agency for Research on Cancer classified glyphosate, which is a very popular herbicide used in the product Roundup. Um, and it, that was classified as a probable human carcinogen. Oh, this is the stuff you spray in your driveway when you have weeds? Is that the... Right. Oh, yeah, right. that's... And it's also used widely agriculturally. Wow. On corn, um, soybeans for example. Um, so there's many ways we can be exposed to these various pesticides. And, and also pesticides are, are really a very heterogeneous group. You know, they comprise lots of different chemical structures, uh, have different properties, um, behave differently. Um, by nature, they're designed to be toxic, right? They're designed to kill things, either insects, weeds. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean they cause cancer. So, um, you know, it's important to to do the work to see if they actually um, are associated with increased risks of cancer. 
But there are other things like um, if I'm remembering correctly, some of the pesticides are neurotoxins too, right? So that's yes. another. It's not just cancer. We have in the news recently that people that go to other well, and these happen mostly off offshore. But people exposed uh, and having very significant out- poor outcomes after exposure to some of these neurotoxic pesticides, right? I mean, there's, some of them are really, um, you can have a fatal exposure, right? Absolutely. There could be a uh, high level if there's, uh, um, you, you, could, you could die of coma um, death from misuse or, or mishandling. Or mishandling. Of, of these chemicals and that because they're designed um, to be neurotoxic to kill insects for example um, but yes there's been a lot of research looking at children and impacts on IQ and cognitive development as well as cancer uh, in some of my research I've worked on studies looking at pesticide exposure and childhood leukemia for example um, with the National Cancer Institute and there again I, I always have this uh, exposure bent so how can we best measure exposure. So there are many studies and several meta-analyses which, uh, you know, summarize research on a given topic. Maybe we could just go back to the (laughs) meta-analysis. Probably our listeners are not all uh, familiar with what a meta-analysis is, but maybe you could talk about how they, this is a big data kind of topic, and maybe you can explain that. Yeah, so a meta-analysis is a statistical tool that's used to pool and combine and integrate many studies on a very specific research question. So there have been several recent meta-analyses that have looked at pesticide exposure and childhood leukemia and found a clear association between um, the exposure and the disease. Now, most of these studies rely on parental self-report of pesticide use, again, asking people questions about um, the types of pesticides or if they use pesticides in and around the home. Um, So I... uh, recently published a a study looking at, well, how well does that correlate, this parental reporting of pesticide use correlate with what's actually measured in the dust in people's homes? And actually, we found uh, very good associations between what parents said they used and what we could measure in the dust. Um, And two important aspects from this study, uh, we, we found that you know, when you ask, if you ask people, do you use glyphosate, you know, uh, people aren't going to be able to report that. Um, but if you can ask very specific questions, if you treated for weeds or did you treat your pet for fleas or ticks, that um, those types of specific questions were associated with the types of pesticides that would be present in those types of products. Dr. Nicole Diesel is Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and Environmental Health at Yale School of Public Health. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program. And we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudet, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.